Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies and the Director of the Center for History and Social Change at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He is an award-winning author and writer who has written nine books, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History and Other Questions, and his latest book, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. Professor Harvey Kay, welcome to Words Matter. Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Well, we've been looking forward to having you. Any discussion of taking hold of our history, I think we should begin by talking a little bit about our history. Happily. And unlike politicians, I've found that history professors have a reason why they chose that career. And it's usually a person, a seminal moment, an event. Now, as we talked before the show, I'm not a trained historian. I only went as far as my master's, but I began my career thinking I was going to be one. So I I have one. And mine is, as a five-year-old, my maternal grandfather gave me a record of John F. Kennedy's most important speeches. And (laughs) I memorized them. I locked myself in a room, and uh, much to the chagrin of my friends at the time and my family, uh, I listened to them over and over again so that, you know, almost a half half century later, almost a half century later, I can still uh, start off with, uh, we observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end in his inaugural address. And one of the things that Kennedy does at the beginning of that. That, can I just add, that sounds like an echo of Jefferson. It is an echo of Jefferson, and I will get to that. And he says, you know, we, and I'll just do it because it is relevant to our discussion. Symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. And as you know, I'm sitting there doing from memory. Yeah. For I've sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed more than a century and three quarters ago. And then he says that the world's very different. We now hold in our hand the power to abolish all forms of human suffering and all forms Mm. of human life. But he says, we dare not forget today that we are the heirs to that first revolution. Oh, yeah. And so that was my wanting to be a history professor origin story. I I didn't do it. Tell us about your Wanting to be a history professor, origin story. Well, I'll start off by saying that I didn't really want to be a history professor. I sort of backed into it. And backed into it happily in the end. But So you said five years old? I was five. I was probably four or five. And my paternal grandfather, both of my grandparents, all my grandparents knew each other. Often the family gathered every other week or even sometimes weekly, either in Brooklyn or out in New Jersey at the suburban home my parents eventually got. And my grandfather bought me, uh, everyone remember, well, everyone of our generation probably remembers golden books. My grandfather bought this oversized, it was like a coffee table sized golden book of Old Testament Bible stories. And he told these stories, I couldn't read, and he told these stories in such a way that they sort of got swept up into a whole history of immigration, into, believe it or not, into the United States. But he could tell these stories in a way that it sort of linked together a deep biblical past. I won't say past, but a deep biblical past and a, and a, and a 20th century kind of story. History mattered somehow. In other words, who are we if we're not both a product of history but also bearers of, of, of history, some of us more than others? So I, it's definitely my grandfather. Well, and you also, in your book, you tell a story about going to your, I believe it was your grandparents' house. Yeah, and right. Finding yourself as a 
you know, in the same sort of age time frame, five, ten years old, somewhere in there. Ten years old, yeah. And discovering a book about American history. Yeah. Um, so we would go, my grandmother was regularly ill. So there was a p- point in time when we were regularly going to Brooklyn to see all the grandparents. And my my grandfather I was speaking of, he and my grandmother lived on Eastern Parkway, directly opposite the Brooklyn Museum, which I used to love to go visit. And I didn't care about the art. I cared about the Egyptology collection. They had an unwrapped mummy. I fascinated my own fascination when I was 10 years old. And when I couldn't get to the museum, if there was no no one willing or, or, or available to take me, I would wander my grandparents' apartment as if it was a museum and with a set of galleries. And I would always end up in the same place the back of the dining room, which would have been the head of the table for my grandfather. And there is where he kept his personal books, not his law books. And so I would just scan the shelves, but I always ended up sitting on the floor in front of one set of books. These were books by and about Thomas Paine. And there was one book that particularly caught my eye because it actually had a red, white, and blue cover. And it was a book that basically, it argued that the real author of the Declaration of Independence was Thomas Paine, not Thomas Jefferson. And as a 10-year-old, you can imagine the fascination to believe that your teachers are wrong and you can prove they're wrong because books don't lie, one thinks, at 10 years of age. Well, I mean, I know the book was, I mean, believe me, I'm not one of the people who subscribe. There are people, by the way, who try to make that argument. They're not historians. I noticed that even after reading that story, you don't try to make that argument. No, absolutely (laughs) not. I mean, I never got 100% on a history test ever growing up. But it was a case that I came to see, I came to see the impossibility of it for a start. And I'll also tell you that if Thomas Paine had written the Declaration, it would have been even more revolutionary. Than the, than the draft that Thomas Jefferson offered. How that would have been, I could, I could actually tell you how it would be more revolutionary. For example, there still remains the question after the Declaration of Independence if the problem is George III or all kings. And I know that all men are created equal, but it opens, there's still that possibility that the Americans might resolve their government question with a monarchy. Payne would never, ever have allowed for that well, possibility. Well, in, in, in reading your, your book and reading your works, you obviously start with where we all, or the few of us, I guess, who do know Thomas Paine and are familiar with Thomas Paine, with common sense. Yeah. And talk a little bit about that pamphlet, how it came about, its influence on the revolution, and how Paine, and again, I know you're an expert in Paine, and so I want to talk a little bit about his influence in the founding generation, and then really through the march of the 19th century up to Lincoln of how this revolutionary spirit, Mm. because I think that when you talk about making America radical again, I want to get across to people that, you know, obviously there were some founders that were, Adams I would consider less radical than than most as a (laughs) sort of patrician in, 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 yeah, in that, he, yeah, in, yeah, right. I mean, but, but Paine was in defense of Adams, so, and I can't yes. believe I'm going to defend Adams. He despised aristocracy, right? But he didn't have any confidence or trust in the people. Correct. Okay. And he was, and he, by all accounts, you would still refer to him today as part of the patriarchy, <laughs> with, without, I think, without question. And from his defense of the, you know, and again, I understand it's illegal and and a right for everybody to have a defense of the the soldiers of the Boston Massacre, but he was a less radical. Paine. Again, reading Common Sense and knowing about pain, he was, if not the most radical, the most radical, serious yeah, um, well, founder. Okay. The first thing to consider, and, and I think you've introduced it well by way of contrast to, to Adams, is that Paine, first of all, grew up a, a 
the son of working people. His father was a, an artisan, okay? Not a, not a laborer, an artisan. And Payne himself was trained as an apprentice in the craft. He didn't like it. He ran away to sea. He had a series of adventures in life. And over and over again, despite all of his determination, he, I hate to use the word, failed at any number of things. But he never allowed it to prevent him from trying again. So he was, at times, he was a, a tutor, a teacher. At times, he was even a preacher in, in Methodist circles. At times, he was a tax collector, an excise officer. Well, in the course of doing all this, he developed, especially as an excise officer among the excise officers of, of Britain, he developed a reputation as someone who was good with words because of some associations he had made. He also found himself friends with Benjamin Franklin, which is a crucial, crucial thing. Well, and his, and his upbringing, as you describe it, sounds a little bit like Franklin, who obviously born in Boston and ran away to Philadelphia as a, as a young man. Yes. And, and in, a, in a similar sort right. of— Right. And you consider the fact that Franklin considered Paine his adopted political son. And when Paine, in his late 30s, approaches Franklin as to, what should I do? Franklin encourages him, this is 1774, to sail for America, to start all over again. We don't know— what Franklin was thinking. Did he think this was a man who could contribute to the developing rebellion? Or was it the fact just that he he liked him and he knew that America offered opportunities? Well, we and, and to be clear, the, all the other founders we talked about were born in the United States or born in the colonies, the British colonies in, in the New World. Thomas Paine was born in England and did not come to the colonies until, as you said, 1774. Right. And just explain a little bit of the scene so, when a guy right. like that shows up. Right, so he arrives, he arrives... And the one thing he has, let's not forget, is that he has a letter of introduction from Franklin, which is a – so even if he's got few resources, he has a very powerful words matter. How's that? Okay. <laughs> and the, old, the oldest and one of – at that time, uh, at least intellectually, probably one of the most the most respected of that founding generation. Yeah. Franklin, Franklin, by the way, was the best-known figure in the Atlantic world of that time. Right. So he arrives in Philadelphia, but Philadelphia as were the other – dozen, well, Pennsylvania and the other dozen colonies, they were already in a state of rebellion. Now, and we often forget that they actually had already thrown out British authority effectively. The British were prepared to, to crush it, but they had, they had been thrown out. And what Paine arrives then to see is the most remarkable self-governance by working people who have organized themselves in committees to regulate economic, political affairs. To him, it's like this, this truly is a new world that offers immense possibilities, not just for these Americans, but for humanity. And the only thing that, that surprises him, and he actually writes his first major political essay, is slavery. He, he, he says, how can a people so committed to liberty allow for slavery in their midst? And he, that will come back later in his story. Right, but it's not, because it's, uh, it's yeah. important. You know, and it's funny because as I read through your book, and, and again, I, I hadn't read much about pain until I started mm -hmm. reading you, in that same inaugural address, Kennedy says, you know, we are the heirs to that first revolution, the belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Now, Paine is, was obviously more of a secularist, but— But he's a deist. He believed in God the creator. Correct. I mean, that's, that's really fundamental. So I'll come back to Paine. So he yes. arrives, and he's, he's tremendously impressed. And then in the, later in the spring now of 1775, he's, he's really shocked by the developments of Lexington and Concord. And that drives him from being not only impressed by America, but it turns him into a patriot with a capital P. And he meets Benjamin Rush of the Continental Congress, and Rush suggests to him the writing of a pamphlet. Though it's interesting that Rush says, don't mention two words. Don't mention independence or republic, which 
I'm sure Paine laughed at the thought, how are you going to write about separating from Britain without doing that? So he writes this pamphlet. And it's interesting that we know the pamphlet to be the first really significant call. In fact, the, truly the first call for an independent United States. He doesn't use the term United and States. And talk about how widely published, disseminated. I know, th- I know there's some sort of historical dispute about exactly how many copies and this and that. But just talk about the breadth of this. And again, I, I believe it was in January of 1776. Right. Was, was when it comes right. out. Ex- well, explain that. Yes. Now, and I'll just add that Payne once said that if it was only independence that we won, it wouldn't have been worth doing. Because the independence should come had to be for a democratic republic. And he believed it was clearly a possibility because of what he had seen in terms of self-organization by working people, Philadelphians especially. So in this pamphlet, he takes apart British government, makes a mockery of, of monarchy, and then reminds Americans, it's like he holds up a mirror to them and says, you have to realize you're not British and you're not fighting for the rights of British subjects. You're Americans And you have the possibility of starting the world all over again on the premise of human rights. That is the most revolutionary statement of the 18th century. And he believes that this will emanate out of their own aspirations. And as he said, he never felt he was any kind of original thinker, and perhaps he wasn't, but he was a brilliant articulator of people's hopes and aspirations. And that's an important point because it's one that from politicians who have quoted Paine but not cited him to others who've quoted him. And so say it again in terms of what he believed that we could make anew. Okay, so the pamphlet actually opens with the cause of America is the cause of all mankind. Within not too many pages, he tells Americans, the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. And what he believed is that is that Americans would show the world that you did not need to be ruled by overlords, whether they were kings, aristocrats, big, large landholders, bosses in what will eventually be what you would think of as industry, that people could govern themselves. This is an absolutely fundamental thing to him. So Americans themselves held in, in their power, as he said, to start the world over again. And what he meant by that is to create a democratic republic where, in which there is no king, the law is king. And I will note, by the way, that Paine and Jefferson, where the other founders themselves rather scorned Paine because he was this working man who had unleashed these democratic aspirations, had brought into, into the struggle artisans, farmers, even slaves would have picked up the spirit because they would have heard people talking about this. Because this pamphlet, you asked about its publication and, and, and distribution. So it appears in January, early January of 1776, and within two weeks a week perhaps, the first 2,000 copies, they're, they're sold. They're gone, okay? And Payne, by the way, indicated that any royalties should go to provide mittens for Washington's troops. He wasn't going to make a penny, he said, on this kind of work. This was, this was a cause that he was committed to. But in the course of that spring, it is estimated that 120,000 copies were distributed. Now, what happened was, Publishers, printers all across, all through the colonies, they just grabbed hold of it and they issued their own kinds of editions. Plus, the copyright laws were a little different. Yes, and Payne later on (laughs) on separate questions is a little disturbed by the yes, because because in fact later in fact there are people who are using it, not even putting his name. Well, originally his name wasn't on it, but when it became known who he was, that later people were quoting it and sort of forgetting who the hell had written it. So 
what happens is that it's it also gets picked up by newspapers. So between January of 76 and pretty much by March, Americans have embraced this argument. I mean, truly embraced this argument. I could go in so many directions, speaking of Adams and Abigail Adams and so on, is that throughout the colonies, high and low, people were toasting common sense. That, that was the nickname they gave the author of the pamphlet. And communities, north and south, started, you know, at their meetings, would actually determine that they wanted an independent America. And they would send their messages to Philadelphia. So in essence, the folks in the Continental Congress it's not likely they ever would have gotten around to declaring independence if it had not been for Paine articulating these aspirations and this popular fervor taking hold in America, which drives, drives, you can say, the, the Continental Congress to take and action. And the language was plain. And look, I think the only words of Thomas Paine that the majority of the population who knows of him know are these are the times that try men's souls are pretty much all that People. Yeah, which is something he writes a year later. But he captures the zeitgeist, right. as it were, yeah. and he articulates the feeling. And I think that that's absolutely right. It's fascinating, and it's one of the places why I wanted to begin here, because that revolution, that radical spirit, when we talk about Jefferson and the other founders and the original sin of slavery in this country, Paine himself was an abolitionist and was not yeah. somebody who right. had any interest in that institution, understood the evils of it, yeah. was not in a position— to affect that change at the time. Right. But, and talk about that, what was born in 1776, and it's funny, as I listen to you talk, people forget, even as early as January, the spring of 1776, Washington had an army. It wasn't, we, we always say it's July 4th, but uh, 1776. But, but but people, Washington and his men, they're, they're, they're up in New England, they're at war. Correct. They're at war, but what, and what's interesting is, at, by, when common sense appears, Washington himself had never said a word about independence. Right. He wanted to fight Britain, because he wanted to guarantee these rights of the British subjects and he didn't want it for Virginia planters to suffer the exploitation of London merchants. But it is the case that when he hears that his men are so fervent, he says, common sense is working, you know, this radical change in the minds of men. He then declares himself for independence. I'm not telling you he declared for the Democratic Republic. That's a different story. But he does declare for independence. Now, What's interesting about this pamphlet is through the revolutionary years, the most important document of the revolution is not the declaration. Right. Over and over again, the thing that people grab hold of to assert who they are and what their cause is about is common sense, not the declaration. There are those who do. I mean, actually, African-Americans in New England, especially those who are still enslaved, will often grab it in order to try to sue for their freedom. Correct. But it's common sense, which is the document. Now... Payne goes on, of course, to continue a continued revolutionary career, and he plays an, a significant role, and he and Washington get very close because he does write the pamphlet, The American Crisis, which is the pamphlet which stirs Americans not to, to get so despondent about the state of affairs that they can make a, a real revolution of their struggle. Now, every generation, and the story goes that Thomas Paine's memory, was that he was forgotten. And I originally intended to write a book that told the story of how conservatives of all sorts, the pompous, the pious, the privileged, the property, had worked to suppress his memory. But when I went to work in research, this is probably the most, this may well be the only original thing I ever did, is I came upon all of these works that had never been brought together to say, whoa, 
pain had never been forgotten. In every generation, every significant social movement for change, for freedom, equality, and democracy would reach back to the revolution, to lay claim, if you like, to the original promise. By the way, the, the arguments of pain, the promises in the declaration, all men are created equal, guaranteed by the creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a kind of original social contract, a mission statement in some ways we could say, okay, right? And then, of course, we get the Constitution later with the preamble, which is itself a kind of revolutionary statement, oddly enough, written by a very conservative founder named Gouverneur Morris. What happens is, whether it's free thinkers, abolitionists, suffragists, populists, labor unionists, progressives of the late 19th century come into the 20th century. It it's includes anarchists and communists, I mean, peace activists, all the way through. And even later than my book, in the wake of my book, I came to discover that Martin Luther King himself embraced words of Thomas Paine, especially the line, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And he felt it was an imperative for him not to forget those words when the civil rights movement gave way to violence in the cities and to black power movement. And he wondered, where do we go from here? And that's, I believe, the title of a book. And, and, and in the 19th century, you know, we, we move, and again, I know that we, we sort of skip over broad swaths of American history when we talk about this, but in terms of the intellectual thought, I'd like to go with to Paine's influence on the next big thinker in American history, which would be Abraham Lincoln. Yes, yes. And Talk a little bit about how Lincoln drew from pain and from that revolutionary spirit in things from, obviously, the Gettysburg Address, but um, the Emancipation and just his view of his yeah, country it, it, and democracy. We all, we all, yeah. Any of us who have, have looked at Lincoln or thought about Lincoln and read, read of his life, we know that the document upon which Lincoln bases almost all of his, his mature political arguments is the Declaration of Independence. Right. But— it's quite possible that that's because he learned a lesson early in his career. So in the early 19, in the early 1830s, Lincoln in New Salem was a reader of Thomas Paine, both common sense and Paine's critique of organized religion, the age of reason. And people who were interviewed later or who corresponded with Lincoln's law partner, Herndon, they said that Lincoln himself had become a free thinker, a, a nonconformist. As you read Lincoln, you can see the degree to which he embraces the Declaration and the promise and the, and the if you like, the, the social contract itself and sees the degree to which Americans must abolish slavery. But at the same time, he's also influenced clearly by, by Paine's understanding that Americans have a place, an originality in the world, and that if that originality, if that promise somehow fails— then all of the other possibilities about democracy, freedom, equality, and rights will go. So when you think about, we all talk about the fact, well, Lincoln hated slavery, opposed slavery, but it's also the case that Lincoln believed it was more important to save the Union than to fight specifically to abolish slavery then and there. But think about it. I mean, he believes that America is this, this model to the world and that it must eventually abolish slavery to, to sustain the mission, if to use that term. And that's clearly pain. Pain has influenced him to believe that America is, in Lincoln's own words, the last best hope of Earth. Because if we can't do it here, it's going to happen nowhere. And so all of those great quotes and all of that intellectual backbone for the, the yeah. effort and, and for Lincoln's writings and for his leadership really does come from that. Talk a little bit for a minute before we move on to FDR about pain 
as an abolitionist and just his view on slavery. And, and I've reading you, I could not help but think, wow, if we had just had Thomas Paine as the sole founder, <laughs> we might not have created the original sin of slavery or or perpetuated it in, in our republic because people like to say, and um, a certain group of people like to say, well, all the founders were pro-slavery, yeah. and that's not true. Not true. Not and true. talk about right. Paine in that context. For right. Me. Well, for a start, I mean, it's, it's nice to hear you refer to Paine as one of the founders because for 200 years, he was pushed to the side. And as I said, it was sort of liberals, radicals, progressives, you name the social movement, those are the folks who were laying He was, laying He is a forgotten founder. I guess, you know, if you, I, as I said to you before, if you were a uh, somebody who did music and theater, your forgotten founder might not have been Hamilton. It might have been Thomas Paine. Yes. <laughs> and I will point out to everyone, the Lin-Manuel Miranda, when asked what every book Americans should read, he did say Paine's common sense. Okay. But talk about him as somebody who was against slavery, just to put it in context. Well, again, he was, he was absolutely, well, first of all, having run away to serve aboard a privateer in the Atlantic, a British privateer. It's not unlikely that Payne, for the first time in his life, and also in living in London, encountered the diversity of humanity. Because the privateers, they weren't just white Brits. Presumably, there were runaway slaves from the Caribbean who were serving. There were, you know, mixed-race, biracial and people serving. You, you mean a pirate, essentially. Well, well, a pirate is an illegal act. Okay. okay. A privateer is a ship that's licensed by the crown okay. to go out and attack enemy shipping. There you go. Okay. okay? <laughs> Just for the record. But he surely developed on board that ship a, a sense of the diversity and the equality of, of men. Okay. When he comes to America, and he probably had he probably had a sense that America was going to be truly radically different in every which way. And he really was shocked by, by the prevalence of slavery in America. Even though he's in Philadelphia, there is slavery in Philadelphia, and there's a slave market in Philadelphia. And he's become the editor because of that letter that he brought with him by, from Franklin. He becomes the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine. And the Pennsylvania Magazine, he turned into the most popular magazine of the 1770s. And his first major political statement, as opposed to the odd variety of pieces he would have otherwise written praising American life and so on is this challenge called African slavery in America. And he, is, he cannot imagine, as I said before, that Americans who were just so determined to win liberty to secure their rights would ever deny their rights in such a gross and horrific way. So moving from that revolutionary spirit, one of your other specialties is Franklin Roosevelt, who in the pantheon of presidents, and that's funny, you mentioned as a student, you'd never, I, I only got one 100 in my entire academic career oh, yeah. anything, and it was my 11th grade history class, the American presidency. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I always say that whether it's the movie, whether it's the book, whether it's the song, the popular remembrance of the best line is often wrong. And of course, we, we remember FDR for many things, and, and but obviously his inaugural address. I think that, and I know that you share an admiration for the speech, that Franklin Roosevelt's 1936 uh, acceptance speech, the acceptance speech for right. his, the Democratic nomination, right. second time, held in the city of Philadelphia, yeah. is one of the most underrated speeches in American history. Yeah, and you have to ask yourself why, not just underrated, but generally marginalized. This is this acceptance speech, which he delivers in a baseball stadium in Philadelphia, you get the idea that Roosevelt really understands the connection between past and present. One of the presidential historians called Roosevelt the history teacher-in-chief 
because whenever he spoke, he could speak at two levels in a very personal way, talking about stories about the way he ran the house or the farm up in Hyde Park. But he also would talk on a grand scale of the meaning of America and link it to figures, presidents before, revolutionary moments before. So he goes into Philadelphia, 1936. This is in very late June, 1936. And he's basically framed this acceptance speech, this whole convention. Which is a, which is a political speech. And, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to forget that political speeches, even uh, figures like Roosevelt would still draw on history in a meaningful way, not just a cursory Right. Way. And what he does is he frames the whole convention and the speech in particular in terms of the American Revolution right. and the meaning of that and the fight against royalism. And what he does is he talks about we were fighting political royalism, the royalists, back in 1776, and today we have to fight the economic royalists, another, basically the titans of industry, the corporate lords who would like to tell us how to live, how to work, how to pursue commerce, how to vote. And what he says is, yeah, give me, Here, read it. I, I was yeah. going to say, these economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. That's it. What yeah. they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. In their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, as always, they stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjugation and against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. Yeah, yeah no, I, it, it, that's fantastic. So radical you were tripping over it. <laughs> yes. I did, I, you, no, because when you read the words, you say, wow, I can't believe he said that. It's a president. This is not a man like running for president out of some marginal party. This is the president of the United States, and this was broadcast across the country. And you can imagine when people heard this, they either shivered or they stood up and thought, now that's, that's why I voted for him in 32, and that's why I'll vote for him again. No, I mean, it, it is an extraordinary speech. You know, like utterly different people, utterly different roles, utterly different moments in history. But when I read Roosevelt, I get the same feeling as when I read Thomas Paine, and that is they had an incredible confidence in their fellow citizens. That's what enabled them. And I, and I, think, I think that also characterized Lincoln, that's what enables a leader. That's what, that's what fortifies a leader and enables a leader to rally people because he doesn't presume that he has the answers necessarily. He presumes that the answers lie within the, his fellow citizens. So when he spoke those words, he presumed that Americans knew exactly what he was talking about. And that even if they couldn't tell you the story of the American Revolution in any kind of academic way, that they carried with them the sense of who they were as Americans, because that pain, common sense, the Declaration of Independence, the preamble to the Constitution, the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, that they become part of a, a very deep cultural memory. Any fair reading of Roosevelt, I, I, I've always thought that that was the moment that he left the patriarchy. And when those, those of that generation who say, who hated Roosevelt and said he was a traitor to his class, it was at that moment in yeah. 1936. Right. Roosevelt was of he, he still was in the politician category of thinkers, but he's yeah. but at that moment. And the other interesting part about that speech, he doesn't claim the infallibility of government, right? And he says governments can err, presidents do make mistakes, but the immortal Dante tells us that divine justice weighs the sins of the cold-blooded and the sins of the warm-hearted on different scales. And he goes on to say, which I think is one of the most important lines of Roosevelt's entire presidency and his career, which is, he says, 
There's a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. And of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Yeah, yeah. By the way, and I just want, yeah, I mean, every time I hear those words, I just get all, you know, I'm ready to go to work. And so, so when I hear that, I think to myself, I think that we haven't heard words like that in a long time. The reason I wrote Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, is not, I'm not only talking about the likes of revolutionaries and radicals who I've written about, you know, from Thomas Paine to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass and so on. I'm talking about the fact that we had presidents who, when they had to confront mortal crises in American life, Lincoln and Roosevelt, they led Americans to make America radical. I mean, look, there's that speech by Lincoln in December 1862 which today we'd call a State of the Union message. It's the annual message to Congress. And what he says is, fellow citizens, we know what we have to do in, here in the Civil War. We know, the world knows we know. And what, we, what he's saying is, we know that slavery is the cause of this crisis. And we know that the liberation, the emancipation of slaves, that will not only liberate slaves, it will liberate us from the devastation. And that is in the depths of the Civil War. And at the same time, fast forward to FDR, 1936, you still had double-digit unemployment. You had the rise of fascism and totalitarianism right. Right. in the rest of the world. Yeah. And this was as dark a moment in some ways. Right. So it, the clouds were on the horizon. And, he, and right. FDR being FDR could see them. Right. Well, then if we could jump ahead for the moment to the theme of that book, The Four the four, And that's the what fight I want to get to because in, some, in many ways I feel like this is – this speech is the antecedent to four freedoms. In, right, in, it really is, because it's that, that rendezvous with destiny idea. Well, what is that destiny? Now, he wasn't sure there would, a war would come, but he's going back to that idea of pains that we have it in our, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. It's not that he's going to start the world over again. It's that Americans have this extraordinary place in history. You know, I'm one of the people on the left who believes in a kind of American exceptionalism. I think that everywhere in the world... Part of four freedoms right. is important. Okay, so he goes before the American people. It's it's January eleventh, nineteen forty one. He's now won a third term as president. The war is underway in Europe. There is a good likelihood that fascism will win, and there is absolutely no way that Roosevelt would ever abide the the, the victory of fascism. So he goes before the nation with the idea of letting people know they are coming for us that we won't know when it's going to happen. And he presumed Germany was going to be the source of the attack, just as much as the possibility of Japan. But what he wants to do is he wants to rally Americans to turn the nation into the arsenal of democracy, to fortify Britain and its allies in its struggle, resisting the Blitz, resisting the, th the, the likelihood of a German invasion of Britain. So he's calling on Americans to, this really is the call to war, the call to arms, not December, not the, not the post-Pearl Harbor speech. This is the call to war. But he knows that Americans don't really want to go to war. By the way, Americans never want to go to war. Let's make that clear, despite arguments by others. But what he does know is that Americans don't want to go to war also because they don't want to give up the achievements of the New Deal. Workers have become organized. Basically, you have a real democratic revolution, small d, small r revolution that's taken place in the 1930s. So he goes before them and he tells them, but for us to properly become the arsenal of democracy and to fortify ourselves against the possibility of attack, we don't have to suspend who we are and suspend our achievements. We actually have to intensify them. 
We have to make sure we're ready. And he says, moreover, we're not only going to continue what to do what we do well and what we've been doing these past ten these past eight years. We're also going to imagine a world beyond the war. And he knows. I know he knows when he's saying that he's thinking of the Declaration, the Bill of Rights, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. He's thinking that this has to be one of those kinds of moments where the words matter. And he offers the four freedoms. Simply put, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom of religion, that is, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. But he really does a surprising thing, even his own advisors, because he wrote this peroration, as it's called. He says, everywhere in the world. In other words, this becomes part of the grander mission. And they try to talk, his advisors, as you say, uh, try to talk him out of it. They yeah, say, people, is, don't, people don't care. He right. says, well, they're going to have right. to start to care. They're going to have to start to care. Now, it is the case that Americans did care about the four freedoms, but it's fairly evident from the polling that was later done that Americans heard the speech in terms of how America could be made all the freer, all the more equal, and all the more democratic. So I'm not telling you Americans subscribe so readily to the idea that we're going to change the world in this way. And that's not the case. But they did embrace the four freedoms. This is an argument I've had with a lot of people. There are those who say Americans couldn't even later recite the four freedoms. But that's part of the American problem. We don't do well in recitation. The English teach their kids to recite poetry. We don't. Right. But we, we absorb these things because they add to that original cultural memory. And Americans knew what they were fighting for. There's no question in my mind. It may well not have been to change the world, but it surely was to defend what America was supposed to be about and enable America to start living up to it all the more, including African-American troops who fought what they called the double victory, the victory against fascism abroad and the victory against fascism at home. And it's funny, again, when I read the FDR line about rendezvous with destiny, I hear, ask not what's your country to much to some generations, oh, yeah. some is given to yeah. some generations as much as yeah. asked. Right. And I, I, I say that because I wanted to tie Kennedy a little bit into this, into that the first of the greatest generation presidents, as it were. But this revolutionary spirit and the going back to the founders, in some ways in the last 30 years, 40 years, this has become perverted by conservatives. They've claimed hold of some of these ideas and ideals. And Reagan, who you and I both think is an underrated character, yes. sort of was the first to use it. Newt Gingrich is one who, who has done it. Yeah, well, well. There's, that's where the perversion occurs. Right. It, it goes, <laughs> okay. ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that to appreciate Reagan, and by the way, I mean, I'm not somebody who would ever have embraced Reagan's politics. But as a, as, a, as a historian, I always felt people had utterly underestimated Ronald Reagan. They really just didn't grasp the degree to which that he had a sense of American history, that even if it was not the one that I would subscribe to, it was one that would empower him to speak to his fellow Americans very effectively. But he couldn't have done that. And this is the key thing. And, and people are going to get upset what I'm saying about, about this is the fact that my generation— and also the politicians who emerge in the Democratic Party in the 1970s, they turned their back. They turned their back on American history. They turned their back on the currents that had run from Thomas Paine to Abraham Lincoln to Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, I, I think Jimmy Carter was, was a disastrous president. 
And it, it, there, was not a ch- there was not a chance that if he had learned a lesson from FDR, his own family despised FDR. He did everything he could basically to turn his back on the FDR tradition, turned his back on the consumer rights movement, he turned his back on the labor movement, he turned his back on all of those folks who had been— many, And there were many know. reasons for that, both, both his family status of being a carter— Right, and, right. And, and despite his, yeah. his plain-spoken right. peanut farmer so the, persona. Yeah, so the door is opened, you might say. Right. Because both the left and the so-called liberal left— they turned their back on this tradition, which FDR had made the tradition of the Democratic Party and had, and had inspired presidents thereafter and inspired labor leaders thereafter, you know, such as Walter Ruther, for example. Right. And, then we, and Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, was a Roosevelt Democrat, was also, by the way, a Truman Democrat, he is imbued with this kind of thinking. But he's turned from the Roosevelt policy perspective. He's turned away from even if he was a labor leader in, in, in Hollywood, he turned away from the labor movement. He turned away from Social Security. He, want, he would have been happy to abolish Social Security in the course of his career. So what do we get? We get a president who is capable of speaking to Americans' deepest sensibilities. And what does he do in his, his acceptance speech at the Republican convention in 1980? And, you, and George Will was shocked by it, by the way. He quotes Thomas Paine, the most revolutionary words. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. Can you imagine what? I can imagine the Republicans themselves wonder what have we gotten ourselves Those into here. Those who understood it, right? Yes. And then he quotes Lincoln, and FDR back in 19, in the early '30s had said to a, a prominent intellectual in the party, he said, "You know, the Republicans are turning their back on Lincoln. Let's make him one of our own. In other words, let's turn him into a Democrat," which he did effectively do. And then, of course, he quotes FDR himself, Ronald Reagan. By the way, during Hollywood parties in the 40s, he was capable of reciting whole, whole paragraphs of, of Roosevelt. So what do we have? We have a president who wants, like FDR, to grab hold of Americans' deepest sensibilities. In Reagan's case, however, it was not in favor, in my mind, in favor of freedom, equality, and democracy. It had a more narrower sense of liberty, which goes back to a kind of political, economic, laissez-faire kind of thing, reduce taxes, reduce regulation, basically empower entrepreneurship, empower corporate activity, which, by the way, was what Carter paved the way for in the late 70s. If you read Carter's speeches, they are literally paving the way for Ronald Reagan. We could keep going all day. I want to do both the book and the ideas justice. And I want to stick with pain for a second just to bring us to today because in the last few weeks, we've seen the Speaker of the House quote Thomas Paine as well. <laughs> uh, now, it's not a well-known quote. And right. It's one that we've, we've had a little trouble finding. <laughs> but a little bit in terms of how to make America radical again. Talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi quoting Paine and Franklin well, it's who, funny. Who, who she she used the, li- the line that the times have found us, although she said the times have, have found us or the time has found us. And I was getting calls from the media. People were saying, we can't find this, we can't find this line. And I said, well, neither can I. But what it was is, in common sense, he still writes like a Quaker because his father had been a Quaker. Hath is the word. So if you go to Google, has, Google doesn't recognize it, okay? So, but she uses this this line. Now, it would be wonderful if the Democrats could pick up the pain spirit, the pain tradition, the pain language, the Jeffersonian spirit. But generally, the Democrats tend to, fo- to turn their backs on Jefferson because they'll be accused of having 
quoted a slaveholder. I mean, that's part of the problem we have today with the Democratic Party is they have yet to figure out how to take hold of our history. The candidate who has finally figured out how that might be is, of course, Bernie Sanders. But I won't go political right now. I want to stick to, to, to the question. What I want Americans to realize, if you don't mind my no, please this do. way, by way of this book, Take Hold of Our History, is that I want Americans, and I'd love Democrats in particular, I'd like my fellow people on the left to realize that their fellow citizens do want, to use the, ter- the words of the great black poet Langston Hughes, they want to make America America again, okay? But the America that never existed, the price of liberty is not simply eternal vigilance, you know, the lines that often attributed to Patrick Henry, whether they were his or not. The price of liberty requires the advance of liberty. The rights that, we be, that our fathers bequeathed to us, if we're going to defend them and secure them, we have to create new rights for our children. I think that comes out of Thomas Paine. I think Lincoln did grasp that. I think FDR grasped that. FDR back in the late 30s said, if democracy doesn't conti- con- essentially doesn't continually advance, we're going to open the door to fascism and communism because the American democratic idea requires, even Alexander Hamilton recognized it. We're like this grand experiment. He wouldn't have used the word democracy. He would have talked in Republican government. But we're this grand experiment in democracy. What do you do in an experiment? You constantly push at the limits. You test. And that's where we have gone awry these last 40 years. And I want Americans to start embracing the history, first of all, because I want them to understand why they feel so uneasy about the state of America, because they carry with them that spirit of pain and, if you like, Jefferson, but also because we face a crisis that I believe is on the scale of the 1770s, the 1860s, the 1930s, and the 1940s, and to some extent, the 60s. And that crisis is potentially mortal. And what we need to realize is when Americans confront mortal crises, they make America more radical. They make America freer, more equal, and more democratic. And if we're going to live up to being Americans, that's exactly what we have to do. I agree with all that, and it's one of the reasons why we really wanted to have you on today. I want to finish with the idea of in all those periods that you mentioned, we saw great unrest, we saw civil war, we saw domestic violence. We also saw Americans in the streets. What do you, as somebody who studies this, why do you think that there aren't Americans in the streets? What do you think it will take to get Americans to be more radical? And again, particularly the 60s, your generation who started their their lives, their adult lives, being in the streets. In the streets, right. Talk about that. Well, first of all, I want to let everyone know that in, in this new book of mine, I do talk about my experience occupying the state capitol in Madison, Wisconsin. And I think it's one of the first times I was brought, I was actually brought to tears by the experience. People as diverse as Wisconsin, in terms of generations, in terms of race, in terms of, I mean, it was so remarkable. And here are these thousands of people, 100,000 people really around the Capitol. Here we've occupied the Capitol because Walker and the Republicans have stripped public employees of their collective bargaining rights, which Wisconsin was the first state to grant collective bargaining rights to public employees. But we saw dangers ahead, and we marched in order to try to change the legislation. So I know what people Americans are capable of, and I don't just mean teenagers. I saw people in wheelchairs in that state capitol, delegations coming from New York and Los Angeles offering their solidarity. But I'm going to tell you what didn't happen. And this is probably, so I'm using this, this story as an answer to your question. 
Barack Obama ran for the president and said, if workers are on the picket line, I'm going to put on my marching shoes and I'll be there. Now, that's a meta, that's an image. He wasn't going to be there in that sense. But it meant that he would come as president. He would endorse as president. He would be in solidarity with those of us who would have had to do that marching. And the Obama administration turned its back on Wisconsin. Turned its back. So I'll tell you, I, I vote Democratic, but I hold the Democratic Party responsible for much of what has transpired, for its failure to sustain the radical tradition. I'll call it the progressive tradition if people prefer. So why aren't people in the streets? Look, I believe people have it in their capacity to do so. I think we need Democrats and maybe Republicans as well who are willing to say, we're in this crisis. Let's present ourselves truly in the public square. The book is Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. Professor Harvey J.K., thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed having you today on Words Matter. Thank you. We could go on for hours. I have a feeling. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 